0: Transforming, musical, linguistic
1: objects Greetings from cyberdelic space This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon Now, if you've heard our last three podcasts, you know I've been cutting bits and pieces out of a weekend workshop with Terrence McKenna. The year was 1998, and The big fear at the time was that the world would come to a very tragic end with a Y2K failure. And, of course, the biggest news from Washington was all about the President's blowjob in the Oval Office. You know, just like now, they were very strange days. The uh, part I'm going to play right now is actually (laughs) the very beginning of the workshop. It was uh, Friday night. The way Terrence started off was to go around the circle and have everyone say something, uh, just a little something about themselves. And for privacy reasons, I've edited out all of the personal statements that were made and I've only included the comments by Terence that some of these statements uh, elicited and even though this uh, is somewhat of a hodgepodge of thoughts I, I think you'll find Terence's comments quite quite interesting and so here is the one and only Terence McKenna
0: well welcome to uh, in the valley of novelty. I see familiar faces, unfamiliar faces. Uh, we these things are most interesting, at least to me, when they're directed by the agendas of whoever's present. I can I have a number of things on my mind, more than a weekend's worth of stuff. All of it is very familiar to me. I know what I think, mostly, most of the time so uh, don't be afraid to interrupt to ask questions if you're not getting what you want it's fine to take it another direction uh, the way I conceive of these things and how they've evolved over the years is originally my enthusiasm was for informing people about uh, the psychedelic experience especially plants and how that arose out of shamanism and how it uh, was evidence for Jungian models of the psyche and uh, uh, basically for me the, the psychedelic experience was the path to revelation it actually worked on somebody who thought nothing would work and then uh, and uh, and that's still a large part of what gets talked about in these weekends, simply because uh, there's an endless crop of new people who are interested in using these uh, botanical materials for purposes of self-exploration. And doing that safely, sanely, and in a in a uh, fully aware manner involves coordinating a lot of detail botanical, chemical, ethnographic, geographical, evolutionary, biological, pharmacological detail, which we can spend as much time on as the as the group will will tolerate. Uh, what I like to talk about and what I have very little competition terms of talking about is the content of the psychedelic experience which is very difficult to English or, or to bring into any other language and which is not predictable or is confounding of the expectations of students of, uh, of mystical experience and so that was sort of my core Specialty, if you will, was the ethnopharmacology of consciousness and the phenomenology of the states there derived. Uh, But after twenty five or thirty years of doing this, it bleeds into all kinds of larger categories like what is art, what is human history. What is the religious impulse? What is the erotic impulse? What, are, what is mathematics? Uh, and then somehow these concerns, shamanic, oracular, ecstatic, always garner to themselves a prophetistic aura. What is the future? and uh, can it be known, and is it mundane, or is it transcendental, and on what scale, and on what schedule. Uh, <clears throat> so all of these things are interesting to me. Uh, my personal history, if it matters, uh, I grew up uh, in a very middle-class family, in a very small town on the western slopes of Colorado, which is about as white bread culture as you can uh, possibly achieve. Uh was a very stable environment to be brought up in. It was the 50s. It was all, uh, you know, tube furniture and bad television. And, uh, but, the ground I happened to be fortunate enough to walk around on uh, had clamshells 150 million years old scattered through it, dinosaur bones, extinct fishes, and I, as a kid, I was a loner, and I spent a lot of time in these dry arroyos and uh, uh, washes where these fossils and stuff could be found, and then... People informed me of the age of these things. And I can remember when I found out that a million years is a thousand years, a thousand times. It was like I got it. I mean, it was the largest thing I could get at that stage of my conceptualizing reality. But then I suddenly, the... the. The reality of the size and scale of nature snapped into focus for me and I've been thinking about this recently because one of the things you'll find out about me if we get to know each other is I have a, a skeptical and cranky side and I'm forever puzzled by why people believe some of the seeming to me dumb things that they choose to believe and and I spend a lot of time thinking about what is a dumb thing to believe and who uh, you know how do you judge in a shrilly competing ideological marketplace the various claims counterclaims nostrums ideologies therapies insights revelations that are being uh, being peddled and uh, and so my my uh, intellectual development if you want to put it like that was a sort of uh, a, a scientific in the sense that it was always about looking at phenomena, testing it trying to define its limits the strange thing that happened to me because I guess I eventually became involved with psychedelics, was this method of testing, demanding proof, never taking anything for granted. Normally what that does is it, it deflates reality. It flattens it. It makes it industrial and existential and post-romantic and horrifying. But in my case, it didn't because psychedelics are actually a kind of uh, miraculous reality that can stand the test of objective examination. I mean, in other words, there's nothing woo-woo about it. It has to do with perturbing states of brain chemistry and standing back and observing the effects, uh, their rot, Thereby, and it's extremely dependable. And from a medical point of view, it's extremely safe and non-invasive. I mean, one of the paradoxes of pharmacology is that the substances which most dramatically affect the mind do so at tiny doses and with very little sequela. This is extraordinary. It's almost as though the mind, in this case, uh, is a phenomenon very different from the body, where, you know, to achieve major effects in the body, often uh, massively invasive procedures or large doses of invasive chemicals have to be used. Someone once said to me, referring to LSD, that if you wanted to picture at the molecular level of the power of LSD, imagine an ant that can rip the Empire State Building apart in 30 minutes, one ant. In terms of the scales and the sizes of what's going on, that's an, a reasonable analogy to the power of LSD. So I, I explored all kinds of fringe when I was a kid, uh, magic and telepathy and Ouija boards and uh, various invocations, some of which interrupted my career as an altar boy. Uh, you couldn't have it both ways, it turned out. And one by one, these things fell, you know, in the same way that as you go through life you close the door on Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and so forth and so on as you move along toward adulthood. But then I discovered that this the the psychedelic dimension seemed to be uh, an exception. That it was though as though the tidy world of European positivist culture derived from Calvinism and Greek science and so forth and so on had this umbilical point, this place where it was all tied together. And if you untied it, it it completely deflated and you were left staring into something analogous to uh, William James' description of an infant's world, you were left staring into a blooming buzzing confusion. Well uh, you know what what is that? What are the implications of that? It wasn't a confusion chaotic enough to be simply mind uh, dissipated into thermodynamic noise. I think a lot of people who have never taken psychedelics have the idea that It's thermodynamic noise, you know, that it's just the brain isn't working right, it's firing randomly, and then some portion of it is trying desperately to lay gestalts of meaning onto this random firing, and so you get this kind of surreal careening from one supposed illusionary perception to another. Anybody who's taken psychedelics knows this is not a very... Apt or, uh, or cogent description, that actually these things reveal uh, scenarios, modalities, hierophanies um, of emotional and poetic power that are very emotionally moving and sometimes leave in their wake powerful ideas, ideas as powerful as any of the ideas that have moved and shaped civilization. So my, my motivation in talking about these things is that I do not say that this is the only path out of the mundane coil of blind casuistry and entropic degradation. I don't say it's the only path out. It's the only path I found. And I checked some of the other major players, but checking doesn't mean I exhausted them. I mean, perhaps yoga can deliver this. Perhaps my honest metaphysics can deliver these things. Perhaps I was impatient or lumpen or simply not intelligent enough. But the, the good news about psychedelics is that they are incredibly democratic, you know, even the clueless can be swept along if the dose is sufficient. Uh, Yes. Well, so, that's just a little bit about it. And other things that are very interesting to me, as I said, are the future, but the future in some specificity, both the rationally apprehendable future that we get when we extrapolate current technologies, current tendencies, and the not-so-rationally apprehendable future, when we actually turn on all the bells and whistles of the historical process and realize that it is inevitably ramping up into more and more hypersonic states of self-expression, and that this is what is creating end of history phenomenon or this eschatological intimation that now haunts the, the cultural dialogue. There is something deep and profound moving in the mass psyche driven by historical forces long in the process of unfolding but now exacerbated uh, and focused by new communications technologies that are essentially prostheses extensions of the human mind and body of enormous and unpredictable power or with unpredictable consequences. So, in a sense, what began for me as the psychedelic experience, a personal experience triggered by a relationship with a plant based on certain definable pharmacological Phenomena has become like a general metaphor for understanding being in the world and uh, and our historical dilemma because in a way they're fractal adumbrations of each other. I mean, history, call it 15,000 or 25,000 years of duration, is the story of an animal, some kind of complex animal. Becoming conscious and, and staring out then into a kind of universe of infinite possibilities based on what consciousness can do in the realm of energy, matter, light, time, and space. Well, so in a way, the psychedelic experience is like a microcosmic reflection of that. You start from baseline which is your ordinary lumpen or not-so-lumpen, depending on who you are, state of consciousness. But wherever you start from, it lifts you up in a process of evolutionary unfoldment that is squeezed into hours, and it goes on entirely in the evolution of thoughts, feelings, and perceptions. And it, seems, oh, it seemed to me for a long time, at least since I read McLuhan and assimilated his notion of tools as, uh, as things which have a feedback into how we see the world, it seemed to me that uh, uh, the psychedelic state was then like a predictive model for what human history wanted to do. Human history wants to break through all boundaries to somehow have a realized collective relationship with the you know deity or the, that which orders nature or, or some fairly large concept like that. Um, yeah, the implications. It's all in the implications. It has to do with how much intelligence you bring to it at the beginning. You know, if you have, if there's no mind behind the retinal screen, then it's just pyrotechnics, mental pyrotechnics. But it's how much we can make of the phenomenon that that makes it so uh, rich. Yeah, you mentioned the gratuitous grace. This is a based on a famous comment by Aldous Huxley. He was asked at one point, what what is the psychedelic experience? And he said, it's a gratuitous grace. And then he explained, it is neither necessary for salvation nor sufficient for salvation. But it certainly makes it easier. It's like an aid. It's a... It's a cul-de-sac. I mean, we can't suppose that it's necessary for salvation because too many people have gone from birth to the grave without it. But it's one has attained a very fortunate incarnation, I think, to be in a culture, in a place, in a time when psychedelic knowledge is available. And it's a kind of paradox that in our own time, meaning in the last hundred years, All this information has arrived uh, in our laps as the hubristic enterprise of white man anthropology carried back all these medicine kits and mojo bags and sacred plants and so forth and grew them in university botanical gardens and kept the stuff in locked drawers. Uh, It was like a Trojan horse brought inside the city walls of Calvin's Troy and you know now the genie is out of the bottle I'll have to restrain myself for these long exegetical comments uh, on each person's uh, (laughs) yeah yeah I'm interested in all of this too the rising paranoia and what it means and how to come to terms with the, what I call the balkanization of epistemology, the fact that the world isn't whole, large groups of people no longer demand that the world even make sense they're operating on synthetic ontologies that have risen above the concept of mere sense but you know there's a whiff of fascism about that that has to be fully deconstructed before we want to sign up yeah well I have answers for all three of your questions uh, but it would take a while to unfold it but as far as this last question is concerned the official answer is because it came with the conquest that the um, that the stropharic the psilocybe cubensis only prefers the dung of boss indicus cattle so so it was so associated with the cultural genocide brought by the Spanish conquerors. And this is the same reason given why in Mexico, though there are, in the in Mexican situation, it's a little different. You actually have an indigenous population of native mushrooms, but you also have the San Isidro, the, the Cubensis. But it's considered inferior when it isn't by any chemical uh, index. So I think it's a deep association to the conquest is the only thing I can figure. The other thing may be, and this is a more, a, the, I gave you the official answer, then here's an answer based on my own experience. Uh, though I know that some people combine harmean with psilocybin, when I have done it, it has scared the socks off me. Uh It seems an unfriendly combination for me. Now, the way I did it was I took half a dose of ayahuasca and half a dose of mushrooms. Do not do this. Uh, If you must combine these two compounds, I think the way you want to do it is take a fairly substantial dose of um, an MAO inhibitor, either harmless seeds or the banisteriopsis, and a very light amount Of mushrooms, but the fifty-fifty combination was one of the longest evenings I've ever spent. Um, And if I seem not to be going to answer your other two questions in the course of the weekend, remind me, because yeah, I'm keen to to get to both of those. Yeah. Community and connection. Yeah, it's important for all of you to notice everyone who's here because we've our agenda has triumphed so completely culturally that we can't tell ourselves from the rest of the population as we could in the 60s. So it's only at moments like this when we emerge out of the darkness uh, and show ourselves to each other. And I will sail on to the next... Uh, New Age watering hole or institute or whatever, but you should all realize that probably whatever you're looking for, someone in this room could help you out, if you could, but figure out exactly who it is and uh, what it is you're looking for. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned the Kundalini thing because... those of you who've read my book The Invisible or no, um, True Hallucinations know that my brother and I got into something that was tr- triggered by psychedelics and started out as a psychedelic trip but then developed into either an episode of schizophrenia or a revelation or it depended on who was voting Uh and this can happen. And these things are—the path goes further than most sojourners wish to travel. I think. I mean, the power is uh, is immense. And once you find the way, it isn't—you uh, know—it isn't a matter of—it—it uh, it, uh, it can be overwhelming someone once said the yogin and the schizophrenic are divers in the same ocean but one of them has l- learned how to use scuba equipment and the other is simply drowning so the reason for the emphasis on shamanism and on other techniques is you will need techniques if you go into the deep water uh, and they can make your life very simple and and save you from unnecessary suffering. Not all suffering is necessary. Maybe no suffering is necessary. Yeah. Yeah, one of the things that I'm keen to talk to you about is, you know, there are various models of the psychedelic experience, that it's the Jungian unconscious, that it's the ancestor world, that it's this or that. The one that I'm most struck by is, it's the world of the Platonic ideals. It's a world very closely related to mathematics. And in a way, the shaman is a, a, a hyper-mathematician, not in that he s- proposes theorems and solves them, but that he perceives hyper-dimensionally. And the magical power of the shaman, the power to predict weather, to tell where the game has gone, to cure, to uh, uh, have deep insight into social problems within the tribal group. All these so-called magical powers become completely understandable if you believe that the shaman actually attains a kind of hyper-dimensional perception. And, you know, also teaching here this weekend is my old buddy, Ralph Abraham, who's one of the world's leading exponents of chaos dynamics. And he has told me many times that uh, the DMT flash for him is simply and straightforwardly a a perception of hyperspace, a coordination, uh, and this is why metaphors like inner eye and inner seeing makes sense because, of course, in hyperspace, the inside of the body is no more secret from perception than the outside of the body. So, yeah, mathematics is one of the few things I still trust at this point. Yeah, that's my motivation is based basically on curiosity. I mean, I'm fascinated that we've gotten this far. I mean, given that the most economical situation would be pure nothingness, what is this? I mean, why is nature doing these things? And uh, why is organization have such a tenacity? And, and what does it mean that we appear so late in the process and represents so, so, such a difference in the rest of nature. Uh, it's very mysterious. We get used to reality because it's so stable but in fact it's an absolutely confounding situation. Besides the DMT flash, the only other thing that I know that's as confounding as that is ordinary consciousness and incarnate being in a body. It's just so improbable, you know. Yeah, well I was very resonant with the person over here who mentioned Evelyn Underhill's book on mysticism because I also read it at about that age and i wanted these mystical experiences Uh, the problem is that the thing that is so powerful about the psychedelics is that they perform on demand which almost in principle you cannot expect of a mystical experience because that would be essentially man ordering god at man's whim which is not how it's supposed to work Uh, Similarly, you know, waiting for UFOs to come by. You spend a lot of cold nights in the cornfield. But if you were to take five dried grams of Storferic cubensis and spend the night in the cornfield, I don't know whether you would get UFOs, but I guarantee you by morning your notebook would be full of something. So the fascinating thing about the psychedelic is of all of the... It, it seems to... It seems magical in the sense that it seems to respond to human will. One decides whether this is the evening or not. And sometimes people have said to me, well, don't you want to achieve these things on the natch? Well, to me that suggests a certain degree of -of out-of-controlness. In other words, if I were sitting here suddenly to notice that I appeared to have taken 20 milligrams of psilocybin I would be alarmed I would be concerned I would want to know the casuistry of why I felt this way whether somebody had dosed me at dinner or I was losing my mind or what was going on on the other hand if I had initiated the experience I would be perfectly at ease with it and see the unfolding signposts and, and know what it was uh, Yeah, it's a difference of sort of waiting in an attitude of the supplicant, the expectant supplicant, or being the hierophant with all the Faustian echoes that that carries with it, and being able to call down the power, or go up to the power at will. And, you know, that's a, that's a fantastic thing, and a responsibility. Yeah, Yeah. one of the things that inevitably downloads out of all this psychedelic stuff is, uh, because it's central to understanding our nature anyway, is how do we relate to our sexuality, to our relationships, to our obligations, to biology and romanticism and so forth and so on. And You mentioned monotony, monogamy, and monotheism, or was that the one? Yeah, well, part of what happens with a career like mine is everything you ever say is taped. So then your ideas may change over time, but people will listen to an eight-year-old tape, a six-year-old tape, and so you're like imprisoned or liberated. I haven't figured out which... Because you you must account for every opinion you ever held, even if you no longer hold it. Uh, the toughest thing to figure out is relationships. It is the yoga of the West, but it's harder than yoga. Uh, and it, it, uh, I'm 52, nearly, and I don't feel greatly wiser in this area than I felt at 24 and you know I've had a marriage I've had a divorce I've been single I've had long term relationships short term relationships on and on and on uh, this is uh, this is um, well part of what I'll say in a larger context is we shouldn't seek for closure we shouldn't uh, Part of what the psychedelic point of view represents is living a certain portion of your life without answers, just accepting that certain dilemmas will never resolve themselves into some kind of a a complete answer. That's why psychedelics are so different from any system being sold, from one of the great elder systems like Christianity to the latest cult out of Los Angeles these cults these cultic answers always invariably provide a complete set of answers to life's dilemmas at the price of being absurd but this doesn't seem to bother people so part of what being psychedelic means I think is relentlessly living with unanswered questions and this relationship thing, this is the heart of the alchemical furnace. This is where the coincidencia positorum is, is a fact in your life and uh, and my life. And I don't know whether <clears throat> psychedelics make it easier or harder uh, to come to terms with that. They certainly reveal its many facets uh, with, with incredible and sometimes bewildering uh, The, you know it's a frustrating situation because the literature tells you that DMT occurs widely throughout nature distributed through grasses uh, mammalian brain tissue um, leguminous trees um, rubiaceous plants but when you actually go to try and get it out you encounter two problems either it's spread very thin or That's the, if it's spread thin by simply gross overwhelmment, you can get it out. But the other problem is, it often occurs complexed with other tryptamines of very nearly the same molecular weight, and they have activity you don't want. Cardioactive activity or like that. So, practically speaking, in my own experience, the cleanest source of DMT is the viridis and uh if you can get hold of it and grow it you will obtain a clean source of DMT but you basically you need 5 acres in a tropical country to do it right uh that's why i have 5 acres in a tropical country <laughs> what While it is schedule one uh, oh, pardon me yeah all DMT is schedule one but there's a weird catch-22 around that I mean we all contain DMT so you know it's like the universal holding law everybody's holding everybody is potentially out from under the umbrella the probably, though you may not wish to hear this, the shortcut, the easier path, is to just pull your, tighten your belt and learn organic chemistry and make it then from scratch or, you know, from tryptophan or indole or something. Uh, but it's a puzzle why there is so little DMT, because as a synthetic process, it's not that difficult it's certainly far less difficult than making lsd or something like that but it's vanishingly rare in the underground one reason for that may be you know if you sell somebody a gram they may leave a significant portion of it to their great-grandchildren this is not a drug of abuse where what people like are drugs, where you sell somebody a gram at eight in the evening, and at eleven o'clock they're beating on your door to buy two more. This is not like that. Uh, uh, you know, it it is. You mean what is it doing there? It's not really well understood. The people who identified it, their best guess was that it had something to do with very rapid shifts of short-term attention. In other words, a shot is fired. Everyone in the room turns and looks in well under a second. That is possibly those shifts of attention are mediated by DMT. The fact that uh, that it is so dramatic as a psychedelic experience but goes away so quickly makes it an ideal chemical to use in these kinds of short-term reactions where something spikes and then very rapidly returns to its baseline. But what it's really doing in human metabolism, we don't know. Uh, DMT, like many psychedelics, competes with serotonin for the serotonergic bond site. Um, Interesting, then, that drugs like Prozac and Zoloft, these new antidepressants, they also relate to, though in a different way, the serotonergic system, one of the four major neurotransmitter systems that operates in the human brain. Uh, it's no surprise to me that these extremely effective antidepressants are emerging out of uh, meddling with serotonergic chemistry. DMT... Many people experience it as orgasmic or ecstatic. Uh, ecstasy is not simply joy. Ecstasy is an emotion of very great complexity that hovers almost on the edge of terror sometimes. But uh, uh, you know, we could speculate that the orgasm is an interesting phenomenon and what is the chemical basis of orgasm and why does it occur at all Uh, since in many animals it doesn't occur and in fact as you advance in the animal phylogeny orgasm becomes more common well it's uh, I would bet that the chemistry of orgasm the chemistry of DMT the chemistry of mood alteration (coughs) In the next five or ten years, this will all be uh, pieced, you know, deconstructed, and understood. I mean, the recent flap of, of Viagra will be as nothing when a drug is discovered which causes orgasm. And chemically, this is probably not far out of reach. Orgasm is a pretty general-spectrum, chemical response that you ought to be able to pharmacologically mimic with reasonable facility. I'm sure some of our best people at our pharmaceutical companies are hard at work on this. Yeah, but I digress. <laughs> <coughs> uh, we a bit about the most prestigious- Oh, as a source of DMT? If you can get it, I mean, Mimosa hostilis is at least as exotic as, uh, Socotria viridis. Seeds are sold by some of these seedsmen. That sounds fine. It's, uh, I mean, I'm not commenting on the price, I'm commenting on the pharmacology if you take two grams of the seeds well ground and a sufficient amount of the b- root scrapings of, uh, of Mimosa hostilis which is the Brazilian species and then the conspecific Mexican species is uh, Mimosa teneba tenaflora. Uh as far as we can tell chemically these things are equivalent that works Basically, if you're serious about pursuing this, you need to get into the habit of growing things and gardening, or you need to sharpen up your chemistry chops and actually become a synthetic chemist. (laughs) Yeah, there's a new book. I see it's in the bookstore here the Maya cosmogenesis 2012 John Jenkins' book about Mayan archaeoastrology astronomy if you're interested in all that his book pretty much put you know lays it out in greater detail and in a more scholarly fashion than anybody else has done cuz there is a lot of loose-headedness around when it comes to talking about the Maya. But this guy is a very good scholar and is, as always the case, the real truth is more astonishing than any myth. So if you're interested in all that, uh, check it out. And we will talk about the Maya and the time wave and the millennium and all of that stuff in the course of the weekend. <laughs>
1: And if you've been following these podcasts in order, then you know he was good on his word. And now if you're confused about the order in which I'm podcasting this workshop, uh, well, (laughs) it is called the Psychedelic Salon, you know. (laughs) What would you expect? Now, I hope you did uh, pick up on Terrence's warning uh, that some of the old tapes of his talks, earlier tapes, uh, may no longer be his uh, opinions later on. And uh, I'm sure that holds true for these tapes uh, as well. These were recorded in uh, August of 1998. And, uh, of course, Terrence lived for another year and a half or so after that. So uh, some of these opinions he may have changed. Uh, So don't uh, ever, uh, you know, quote Terence McKenna and say this is what he believed at the end because we we don't know all that for sure. And, uh, like I said, don't even hold him to what's on these tapes even though it was close to uh, the end of his life although we didn't know it at the time. No one did, of course. And I hope you also caught uh, what he said about one part of a psychedelic point of view includes living a certain portion of your life without answers. And, uh, yeah, that's what separates psychedelic medicines from any system out there. So keep this in mind if you're thinking about becoming involved with these sacred medicines. You know, they they can be very unforgiving if you uh, abuse them. Whereas most systems, you know, like maybe yoga or something like that, for example, are, are a little difficult to abuse. Uh, at least not quite in the same way as you can with uh, some psychedelics. By the way, I I do agree with Terence about the value of John Major Jenkins' book, uh, Maya Cosmogenesis 2012. It's uh, really too bad Terence isn't still around to comment on the work of Carl Johan Kallman, which uh, I think is uh, more recent than than that. Uh, in fact, uh, Kallman's website, if you want to check it out, is www.calleman.com. And personally, I got a, a lot out of his work, although I don't agree with some of his final conclusions about what's ultimately taking place. But... Nonetheless, Kallman's uh, uh, take on the Mayan calendar as being a, uh, a map of consciousness uh, evolution is quite fascinating and uh, seems to be uh, fitting in place uh, quite well with the events of today. But actually, right now, if you're you're thinking about buying a, a book about 2012, I'd uh, I'd hold off for just a bit until Daniel Pinchbeck's new book comes out uh, this spring. I haven't read it yet myself. But I've heard Daniel talk about his theories on 2012 on uh, several occasions, and from what I know about the subject, I think uh, he's got the best uh, interpretation around. Uh, The book, by the way, is titled 2012, The Return of Kaisakotl, and I uh, just... uh, couple minutes ago checked on Amazon and uh, see that you can pre-order it there. According to them, it will be released on May 6th of 2006. And as you already know, Daniel has uh, been a a big supporter of Palenque Norte since its inception at Burning Man in 2003. And we really appreciate his support. I hope uh, some of you will return the favor and uh, buy a few of his books. I know you won't be disappointed. Well, that's, uh, that's about it for today. Looks like there's going to be, uh, I'd say, probably at least two more of these Terrence McKenna podcasts before I uh, finish the tapes from this 1998 workshop. And if you uh, want to see all the podcasts, you haven't seen them, uh, the previous ones, you can go to our website, www.matrixmasters.com slash podcasts. And uh, we'll uh, continue to post them to that page. So uh, thanks for stopping by. It's good to see you back again. And uh, I use the word see you uh, loosely. uh, For those of you who are maybe uh, using too much medicine and a little paranoid right now, no, I cannot see you. (laughs) Just a figure of speech. Uh, We don't know who downloads our podcasts or who listens to them. And we. uh, just are happy to have you all out there. So, uh, Also a big thank you, by the way, to Chateau Hayuk for the use of their music here in the Psychedelic Salon. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.